Well, I, along with the other elders at the Mission Church, think that it is critical for Christians to know what it means to be the church. We think that it's critical for Christians to know what the church is supposed to do. And so that's why it is that we try at least once a year just to spend some dedicated time looking in the word of God for very specific things that address the Christian church. As things are kind of getting crazy in the world, uh, they've always been crazy in the world, I suspect, but the more upheaval and turmoil that we see, the more people are asking, what should we do? And Christians, of course, are asking the same question, but they're asking it to God, Lord, what should we do? What are we supposed to look like, especially in times like this? It's hard to not feel that the things around us should be giving us some kind of direction, or at least be cluing us into the fact that we need direction, and as believers, we go to the Word of God. And so for the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Acts, in the second chapter. This is a very famous chapter because it tells us about the very first Christian sermon. And by that I mean it's, it's, it's the day of Pentecost where the apostles and the believers in Jesus were gathered in Jerusalem, where God poured out his Holy Spirit, as Jesus prophesied would happen. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They went out preaching and proclaiming the good news to people. And what happens is recorded in that second chapter of the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles with you today, you can go to Acts chapter two. That's where we're gonna be spending our time. But here's what I wanna do. I wanna just quickly walk through what has happened uh, in the last couple weeks worth of our sermons, the last uh, two weeks, which we covered the first and second parts of Peter's sermon on this day. And I wanna show you what what I, I concluded with last week that brings us into the very final part of uh, that chapter this week. We read through the passage. We saw that Peter, in preaching this first sermon, began by answering a question. People were saying, what is with all these believers who are, they, they see them filled with the Holy Spirit, they're speaking in tongues. This is a supernatural gifting where people who did not know how to speak Parthian were given the ability to speak Parthian. So that the people who were in the crowd who didn't even speak the language of these Hebrews would have heard that and they would have been oh my goodness, there's a miracle taking place and they were hearing the gospel in their own language. Peter gave an answer to the crowd as to how such a miracle took place and why. He points to Joel chapter two in the Old Testament and he says, this has been prophesied that in the last days God would pour out his spirit on your sons and your daughters and they shall prophesy and that's what you're experiencing today. He preaches a sermon that's filled with gospel proclamation and the power of the Holy Spirit. He exposits Bible passages. He literally draws on three passages of the Old Testament. He reads them, or recites them rather, and then explains them. That's literally the first Christian sermon in history was a guy reciting Old Testament and then explaining the passage. That's why we do that today in our churches. And then he pointed to the person and the work of Jesus his death, his burial, his resurrection. And when the people cried out and said, well, what should we do? We killed this Messiah. And he proclaimed, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And the Holy Spirit moved and 3,000 people were added to their number that day. 3,000 people were struck to the heart, repented of sins, believed the gospel, turned in faith to Jesus, and were baptized that very day. 
So now what? So you got a whole bunch of people. They've all converted. They've turned to Jesus. They, they went from being Jews. 100% of this crowd was Jewish. They went from being Jews to true Jews, from Jews to being Christians. They've acknowledged their Messiah has come. God has spoken. He has sent the son of David, just like he's always told us he was going to do. What next? What follows is properly speaking a descriptive passage. I just want to really quickly make a point here. We're about to read through verses 42 through 47. This passage describes, it describes what happened. There's two kinds of passages you can find throughout the whole Bible, uh, particularly New Testament as we think about it. Those that describe events that happen and those that prescribe what should happen. Make sense? We kind of call those the indicatives, the things, the passages that just indicate what happened and the imperatives, the ones that command us what we should do. Now, properly speaking, this is not a paragraph that commands us what to do. It tells us what did happen. I want to acknowledge this, but at the same time, I want to make clear that as we continue reading, not just in the book of Acts, but the rest of the New Testament, we're going to find that the things that are happening here and being described are later explicitly prescribed that should mark the Christian church. And this is the first place we see it. I went on a camping trip with some Marine buddies uh, to Yellowstone National Park. Uh, there were five sergeants in the Marine Corps. That all, we all piled in my Jeep Grand Cherokee and drove out to Yellowstone. I, uh, this was a very meaningful trip for me. It was literally the month before I, I quit the path that I was on and then joined the ministry to become where, where I am today. It was a meaningful time for me. But as I think back to that time, I remember our very first hike we did. We were out there for a, for a few weeks and uh, we just got piled out of the, the Jeep. Uh, we, we hit the trail and we started going to our first campsite. It was like six miles in or something like that. And shortly after hiking, somebody, whoever was in the front, not me, got lost. And we were all following that guy and, and the trail started out nice and wide and all of a sudden it got tighter and tighter and tighter until we're like stepping over bushes and under trees. And I'm like, I, I don't think this is a national park trail. This doesn't quite feel right. Well, it went from a, from a trail that we were supposed to be on to a game trail, you know, just one that, that the critters in the forest would go, go through. So there was a little bit of a path, but we, we were lost. We didn't know where we were. We kept moving forward. This was literally like a half an hour out and under our hike. We just started. Now, luckily, we knew that while we had no idea where we were, we knew that all we had to do was continue going west, and we'd hit the river that we would follow until we got to our campsite. Maybe you've been in a similar situation before out in the woods and hiking. You, you can't quite discern where you are. You pull out the maps, and all the trees are all tall. You can't figure out exactly where you are. You're, you, you know, maybe you're, you're, if you had a cell phone, it doesn't work. The GPS isn't kicking in or something. You just don't know where you are. I, I want you to think about that for a second. Because we oftentimes say that in order to get where you're going, you need to know where you are. And sometimes that can be true, right? Sometimes there's some truth to that. But right now, in this particular time in the church life, I mean, right now, 2020, people are looking around and saying, what is going on? We're seeing things happening, right? People are saying this. Is this the end times? Is this, does this mean that we need to be preparing for some new season of revival or persecution? We're all wondering what exactly is going on? Where are we? And the second question that a lot of believers are asking today is, what are we supposed to do, right? So where are we and where are we to go? What are we supposed to do next? Might I offer to you, 
that this might be one of those kind of situations where it is far more important to know what to do than it is to know where we are. In fact, oftentimes, it's easier for us to know exactly what direction we should go than to know exactly where we are. And what I mean by that is that we could pine over for weeks, months even, about let's, let's, let's try to decipher exactly what's going on around us. It is more important that we do what God has called for us to go do. So let's take a look real quick, and I'll try to make a connection for you in this sermon as to why it's so important for us to know where we should go, what the church should look like, what the church should be busy doing. So this is the point of the sermon today. You want to know the point of the sermon? My wife loves when I make this really clear at the beginning. Here's the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is to try to help encourage you with this passage in exactly what the church should be doing. Exactly. Nothing less than what I'm about to preach to you should the church be doing. More? Maybe. Nothing less. In other words, let's first do what we see here And I'm telling you the end before the beginning. So let's jump in here. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, as we open this particular passage of Scripture, as we read it today and acknowledge that that this passage is describing a very special and important point of church history, Father, I pray that you would help us connect the dots to our day, that we would know what it is we're supposed to take from then and repeat today. Help us to make that connection. Father, help us to not feel so distant from these first gathered Christian believers that we neglect to see that what you have commanded for the church to do has never changed and won't. Help us to acknowledge and see that. Send your Holy Spirit to give us clarity and insight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 again, if you've got it. I'm going to put it up here for you so you can follow along. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is an amazing summary statement. The verse that precedes this tells us that 3,000 people got saved on a single day. God did a mighty work, 3,000 people saved. What did those 3,000 people do? Oh, that's such an encouraging word, and they went back and did their own thing. No, something happened to them. From that point forward, they became the people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know, this word devoted, it means a persistent kind of devotion. It means a continued in the same direction kind of something. It is a, it is a, is a way that a person would bind their conscience to, this is what I'm going to go and do. They devoted themselves to these things. And what we see here is a list of four things that are specifically stated in this singular verse. First, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, real quick, let's just ask the question, 
who is meant by these apostles? Let's answer that question first. Who are these apostles? These apostles were the 12 who were taught by Jesus himself. In fact, if you'd go back one chapter, you'll see that when they only had 11, because Judas had betrayed Jesus, he was, he was never really among them. He just looked like he was. Jesus would say this, that he rejected the truth even from the beginning. He knew he was going to betray him. Judas betrayed Jesus. He ended up killing himself after he betrayed Jesus. They had to add another person to their number. And so chapter one details how they actually came together and they asked God to supernaturally clarify through the casting of lots who should be this chosen one. We can't choose, Jesus, because this is somebody you chose. You have to do this in a distinct way. This can't just be by a vote. It can't be a popularity contest. You do this. And they chose Matthias. You might even remember that when Matthias was chosen, one of the specific requirements that was that he was one of the guys who had been present throughout all of Jesus's ministry since his baptism. Couldn't have been a newbie to the group. He had to actually have been there to have heard all of Jesus' teaching. Why? Well, John 14, 26 and John 15, 27 I think gives some clarity to this. This is when Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's giving them preparation for the ministry they're about to do. He tells them about the promised Holy Spirit who's coming. And this is what is said in John 14, 26. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he knows that the, that the apostles that he sent to go be witnesses for him, are going to need to be reminded by. They're going to need to remember all those things that Jesus had said. They couldn't have done this on their own, so he sends the Holy Spirit to supernaturally draw to memory the things that they were supposed to tell about Jesus. In John 15, 27, he continues and says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. There was a very special role for these apostles. They were distinctive in, their, in their, their calling. They were to do something unique. They were to bear witness to, I saw Jesus, I heard. You weren't even there when I was camping out with him uh, uh, in Galilee, and, and he told us these things. We're telling you these things now. That's the apostles' teaching. You know, the word apostle just, just refers to the sent ones, ones who were sent for a purpose. And there's two kinds of apostles talked about in the New Testament. One, one sent ones are those specifically sent by Jesus himself. And another kind of apostle is the one who's sent by the church. So there's those who are sent specifically by Jesus. We think of them as the capital A apostles. And there's the little A apostles where churches would send out, like missionaries, church planters. But these capital A apostles were given a distinct kind of ministry. This is why actually I think that it is unwise and not helpful for Christians today to refer to particular Christians as apostles. Not because we don't send out sent ones, because it's so often confused with the kind of authoritative office that these guys should be writing New Testament books or something. It might be kind of likened to the word angel. You know the word angel in the New Testament just means messenger? Anytime that a Christian sent one person to another, you could say that person was an angel. You, you could call him that. But, but to say, well, that person's an angel would probably be misconstrued today, wouldn't it? This is why I don't think it's helpful to use that term as a title for people today. I think we should be careful about what that might mean to the people around us. But these apostles taught the people. And they, were, they didn't just hear this stuff. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. These apostles went on to 
be in the charge of writing the New Testament, overseeing the writing of the New Testament. This is why we actually even see when, when Paul becomes an apostle, Jesus appears to him also that Jesus may not only establish that with him, that he actually saw the risen Christ, but he actually taught Paul things as well. Paul would say, I'm, I'm like the, the unique apostle, the 13th one, the one untimely born, Paul would say about himself. But in the New Testament, we see these books are under the authority of the apostles. So where can we find the apostles teaching today? The Bible, the New Testament. Every time you open up the Bible, you are reading the apostles' teaching. That's what we have in front of us. This is one of the single most fundamental things about believers. It's, it's no surprise that this is the first thing listed. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But just because I want to respond to what I've heard some people say before. I, I've heard some who say they're Christians say, well, we're to be devoted to God, not just a book. Guys, that's nonsense. To devote one's... To devote oneself to the word of God is to devote oneself to God himself. 2 John 9 says, Everyone who goes on and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Anyone who says you don't need to follow the Bible, you don't need to abide in what Jesus taught, you don't need to submit to and devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, that person's not in God. You don't have God if you reject his word. This is fundamental. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, and the fellowship. This is the only use of this particular Greek word in Luke's writing, in the book of Luke or the book of Acts, and it's the word koinonia. Paul will use this word on a handful of other occasions. He picks up on this lots of times, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And Paul will use this word to make it very clear that what he means by it is a close relationship. That's what fellowship is. It's close relationship. It's intimate. It's getting to know somebody, like really know them, not just surface level. Oh, I'm pretty sure he's a, he's a Broncos fan, but like really getting to know each other. The whole New Testament is riddled with commands for believers to love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens, admonish one another, uh, lift up one another. Over and over and over, we see these one another passages and that's supposed to be done in fellowship, in relationship with each other. This is more than just people getting together and having meals on an occasion. This is something deeper than that. It's really getting to know another person's hurts, desires, needs, sins. People are starving for this. This is a significant thing because wherever you find believers, you're gonna find them in this kind of fellowship. And oftentimes, when believers are in the biggest parts of struggling in their life, Oftentimes, it's because they're not doing the things that are on this list, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. One of those things goes pretty quickly. You need to be in community. You need to be in connection with other believers. He goes on to say, the teaching and the fellowship. And number three, to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Now, just think of that phrase real quick. This phrase can refer to one of two things. It's used in the New Testament to refer to communion, the Lord's Supper, having the bread and the cup that represent Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. That's one way breaking of bread is used. It's even used in Acts in a way it sounds like it's probably referring to communion. But it's also just simply used to refer to sharing meals with people, okay? Now, I am 
mildly persuaded to the latter of you. I'm mildly persuaded that this is talking about just meals with people. I think that's probably more likely what's in mind. Because Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, when he writes this, both when he writes in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, it sounds like most of the times he uses that term, breaking of bread, it's talking about even believers with non-believers doing it together. It sounds like it's not a symbolic, uh, ritual kind of act of communion. Um, Jesus broke bread with the, the disciples who had been on the road to Emmaus afterwards, and they didn't even know who he was until he broke the bread. They're like, oh my goodness, that's Jesus. We remember that. It doesn't sound like they're having a special communion meal because he disappears right away. He doesn't even have it with them. Uh, it's the same phrase used of the Apostle Paul in Acts 27 when the entire boatful, 276 sailors and Roman soldiers and prisoners all were shipwrecked and they were getting ready to, to die, they all thought. And he said, we need to eat. And so he gave thanks to God and he broke bread and they all had it together. That doesn't sound to me quite like communion. So I don't think that what's in mind here is, is necessarily communion. Certainly believers did that. Certainly we're gonna have that commanded in many other places. I I think this could just mean something as simple as sharing meals with one another. Now, real quick, if you're, if you're persuaded that it is communion, the fact is that was a part of that gathering together with believers. They had this as a, as a component that followed the meal, oftentimes they gathered together, so both of these could work. But here's the point. Guys, meals are a critical part of community life. I think that's why communion was established as a meal. It could have been just lift up some objects or elements and remember something, right? Take a deep breath and remember Jesus breathed life. It could be just think about things, but it was actually during a meal. This is really significant to us. I would say that for believers, we need to literally plan in our lives, budget both time and money for meals, with other people, particularly with other believers. It's probably no surprise to you that I'm not a very nostalgic person. I don't usually get nostalgic about items or objects. In fact, I'm the kind of guy that once I start feeling nostalgic about something, I get rid of it so that can't stick around. I open an old, old box my mom gave to me. Oh, there's the teddy bear you had when you were a kid. Get rid of it. I don't, if, I, if I have that for an extra year, I will never get rid of it. It'll be stuck to me till I die, gone. <laughs> That's the way I tend to think about things. But if somebody were to press me and say, Rich, what, is, what, what piece of furniture in your entire home do you feel the most nostalgic about? I would say it's the kitchen table. More tears have hit that table than any other part of my whole home. More Bibles, the bindings of Bibles have hit that table than anything else. More conversations about the gospel with non-believers and believers alike have happened around that table than anywhere else. That's where the magic happens. Have you not noticed this, how often this happens? Mealtime is significant. I don't mean to over-spiritualize something. I just mean to say that quite simply, when you gather with somebody and pause and take the time to just have dinner with, lunch with, breakfast with somebody, tends to be an amazing and conducive time for people to share about their life, to talk about meaningful things. Christians, quite simply, we just, we eat together. And Brother Bradley back here, he's been saving points from Cafe Rio. He's got like 200 or 300 points or something like that going there because he's a Cafe Rio supporter. Uh, your goal, right, is to eventually bring the whole church together to a Cafe Rio outing on Sunday. So it's coming, it's coming. Why? It's because he values the breaking of tortilla or bread, whatever the thing is here, right? Breaking of bread. And the prayers. It's the fourth thing on this list. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is what the believers devoted themselves to. 
Prayer is fundamental in the believer's life. And this is the kind of prayers that's done together. You notice the way that it's being talked about here. This isn't like the, okay, we all want to pray. Everybody go to their own little corner. No one be together. Of course, pray in your closet. Of course, pray by yourself. Of course, pray when you wake up and when you go to sleep. When nobody's around, when you're in the the prison cell, three stories deep in the ground for the gospel, yes, you pray even alone. But believers are commanded over and over and over and over again to gather together and pray. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter three, verse one, The believers are going to go to the temple during the hour of prayer so they can corporately be there praying together in that place. Since the very beginning, this is what Christians have done. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to confess sins with one another, pray for one another. We're to pray for healing. We're to pray for the gospel spread. We're to pray for the hurts and the wounds of our lives and the good things and thanksgiving. Christians are about prayer. He continues on what life looked like for these believers. Those are the first four things. And he continues, uh, Luke, as he's writing this, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Awe came upon every soul. You know the word awesome. That, that's what this is, awesome. Now, depending on what version or translation of the Bible you have sitting in front of you, you might have a different word there. And the reason is because the word for awe It's the word phobos. That sound familiar at all? It's the Greek word from which we get the term phobia, for fear. In fact, some of your Bibles might say fear, and fear came upon every soul. Why? Because this is a reverent respect. This isn't like an awesome dude kind of thing. It's like a, oh my goodness. It's a shuddering, heavy weighted on the shoulder. Oh, that's significant. That's significant. Awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It seems like that's probably the attached, what the initial feeling of awe was about. They were were even witnessing even miracles taking place. Heavy things, real stuff happening, tears flowing, life-changing. I want us to think about that for a moment. Because there are multiple places in the first few chapters of the book of Acts where we see this reverent fear. In fact, did you know that the first response from non-believers to believers who had not embraced the gospel in the book of Acts is fear. They feared these Christians. Oh my goodness, they have the power of God. You hear what they're saying? They're shamelessly unafraid to be defying what the Jewish council is saying right here in front of everybody. They're healing people. Look at these people. They were afraid. The crowd saw the believers and fear struck them. And yes, this awe, of course, extends to the believers in the body. Heavy, sobering seriousness. Here's what I want to say about this. Church is not supposed to just be all fun and games. Man, I wish you guys would come and see our kids' camps when we've had those. We've had to not put that together this year because of uh, the the restrictions on the number of people that can gather together. And if you've ever tried to keep two kids six feet apart, you probably would understand why we couldn't pack 200 of them in here this year. But we love doing those kind of things and just having fun with those kids. Man, if you go on the retreat, I promise you there's going to be fun. But our church life and family gatherings are not just to be about the fun, lighthearted, how's the weather kind of stuff. In fact, the feeling that we'd hope to convey in gatherings like this, and even when we're together as believers, is serious joy. 
serious joy. As a church, we want to be about the gospel, things that are substantive, about truth that has meaning. Our goal is not to get people all emotionally hopped up over a false sense of levity, but to show them the reality of things. We don't want the the K-love kind of church setting. There's a place for the K-love, positive, encouraging. Sometimes we just need the, the encouragement in that. But that's not what the church life was like for these first believers. It was serious business. I'm connected to lots of church leaders and church resources online. When COVID hit, like late March, early, early April, and every church was like going, oh my goodness, are we supposed to meet? Are we not? How long is this going to last? Uh, uh, how are we supposed to help our people through this? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people are really concerned and scared, either by the disease or the government overreach or uh, the, the, the ensuing uh, response and how it will affect the economy. Everybody's wondering about these things. And so many churches out there, I was hearing in all these different, different feeds that I'm connected to, saying, we need to change course and start talking about this serious thing for now. I'm thinking, why is that a change? Should we not be the people that should, don't need to alter course when real life events come down, when difficulty comes? For the first time in three years, we need to address death. What? Are your people not prepared for the fact that bad things will happen? Because we're such an entertainment-driven society that so many, even, even, even Christians who we love, brothers and sisters, oftentimes get too quickly swayed by the, I just want the lighthearted, fun, hoppy-poppy moments together around, listen, people are going to die. Eternity matters. The reality of the gospel is sobering. We want our church life to be acknowledging those things. And when we smile and when we laugh for it to be a real, a serious joy. You know, when things go crazy in life for people in the world, they don't go running off to their favorite comedian. That's not the person they're going to. Who's the guy who makes me laugh and makes me feel funny? That's who I want to go talk to. And when everything comes crashing down, when I've lost my job, my wife is leaving me, my kid is running out of the house and doing who knows what crazy stuff in the streets. I got to go find the person who makes me laugh. No, people are crying and they need help. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament about the way that believers are to to train up next generation is Titus chapter two. I'm gonna read you verses one through eight. Listen to what is supposed to mark the believers, older believers, as they pour into the younger ones. Listen to this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
I don't know why I get choked up. I guess I do know why I get choked up about this. I've been so blessed by older believers in my life who modeled that. I'm desperate to grow into modeling that for the next generation. Helping people look at the world and and look at the word and see what we're supposed to do. A, A dignity. Dignity? What an underdeveloped underappreciated, underemphasized value in our society, isn't it? Dignity. Sober-mindedness. Women who train younger women to do what the world tells them not to do, this is amazing. And it's costly, and it weighs on our shoulders. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Wonders and signs. This, of course, is miracles. This is the phrase that's used for miracles in the New Testament. All over. Paul will use this. It's used throughout the book of Acts until Acts 15. And then no longer shows up anymore. That word, that term. It's significant. But the leaders of this early church, these apostles, they did these mighty works. They did miracles. And have you ever, ever traced, like, what are these miracles that these guys did? This is actually really fascinating to look at. Uh, we think about, like, illusions and, and uh, street magicians and people doing all these kind of crazy things. And, and These were serious things that these guys did. What was it that they did? Do you remember? Almost entirely healings and exorcisms. Very few other things. Healing and exorcism. See that? People in tears crying out to these believers, I'm paralyzed. I've been blind from birth. My child is sick. They're going to die. Look at the little girl. She's filled with demons. They're destroying her life. These are the people who came to the church. These are the people who came to these apostles. It wasn't like a, yeah, Roman culture, this isn't as fun. We need more entertainment. That gladiator stuff isn't cool anymore. I'm so bored. We need a good social club. They came to the church because they knew that there was something significant about that church. Those apostles were, in a a measure, showing the power of God and his word over death. Why is that significant? Because the entire world is in bondage to the fear of death. That's why. The entire world is, not was, is in bondage to the fear of death. I want to read for you Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Tell us about why it was that Jesus became a man like us, shared in the flesh like us, and then died. Listen to what it says about this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And this is what Jesus does. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the power of the devil over the world. Our fear of death. This is why it is that he has no power over us with his lies. Obviously, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. We have Jesus in us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus in you is bigger and better and better than Satan. By better, I mean the tougher, better, stronger, better. Jesus in you is stronger than Satan. But what is it when we hear the lies that we can press against? You got nothing on me, Satan, because I'm not afraid to die. That's at root. 
and the whole world is scared to death of death. You know, atheism back then was not the problem. The people back then were not, were not concerned about that the same way that they are today. That's the dominant thing we're facing today. The people in that day were crying out to false gods who couldn't heal anybody. There's a kind of atheistic lie that just, uh, well, whatever, you're just, you're just sparkle dust from the universe that means nothing and you're going to a cold, dead grave and who cares? There's no meaning to life, so if you die early, it doesn't matter at all. People then knew that's not true, just like people today know it's not true. They just didn't have a system for it quite the same as our godless culture does right now. These people brought their kids, their family members, and even their own selves before these apostles because they knew there's something about their God can deal with these things. God demonstrated his power. He authenticated these representatives of his truth. You know, anyone can make a claim like these guys made. Anyone could make some claims. Uh, God called me to be a uh, prophet and uh, whatever I say you should do. And um, here's the book I wrote. Uh, no, God gave me to write, I mean, and just obey it. And by the way, give me money, power, women, sex, uh, acclaim, and influence. That would be great. Just give me all that and I'll just tell you what God tells me to tell you, which is to give me those things. Anyone can make such claims. Not everyone can raise someone from the dead like these apostles did. Not anyone can make a person blind from birth able to see a paralytic. Do you remember in John 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night? He comes to him under cover of darkness and he says, Jesus, we know you're a man sent from God because it's not possible from somebody not sent by God to heal and do the miracles that you're doing. In fact, later, some Pharisees try to throw this in Jesus' face. He must be, he must be casting out demons by demons. And Jesus' answer is not, no, you're just wrong. He tells them what a fool they are. He goes, that doesn't even make sense. If the devil casted out the devil, he'd destroy his own kingdom. No, it doesn't work like that. Only God can do that. God was authenticating. He was putting a stamp of approval on these apostles. And awe came upon every soul. Run out of time here. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? Now, if you're a conservative living in America today, you might get a little uncomfortable by passages like these. Isn't it? Smells like communism to me. <laughs> Here's the deal. Let me explain something to you. This is, not, this is not the worldly version of communism by any stretch, okay? Let me give you just two quick reasons as to why this is the case. First, it's not even close because this is preceded by faith in God. That's why. First and foremost, a shared faith in Jesus is necessarily what precedes this. The communistic countries today require that all abide by the same state religion, namely secular humanism, because communism cannot work apart from absolute commitment from every member of the community to the same set of values. You get that? There's a kind of truth there that's even true for believers. What is it that makes it able for people to do this kind of thing and do it rightly? Because we have a shared set of values. The problem is in the communistic countries now, they throw out God and think they can get this good stuff without him. And it's led to more death in the 20th century than all the centuries previous. Second, it's not compulsory. Who is the one holding the gun or the sword to the throat of the people doing this to make them 
give up their stuff. It's not mandatory. It was not enforced. Communistic governments today obligate their citizens to turn over their possessions, and they enforce those obligations with a heavy, even bloody hand. So real quick, just want to make sure you see the beauty of this and cast out anything that might try to make you skeptical. This is a gorgeous, beautiful reality that is supposed to mark the Christian church. And even those who've come after and tried to grab some of this, tried to acquisition some of the good they see here, will never have it apart from the gospel that precedes it. You don't get this unless you get devotion to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. You don't get this until you've had that. But believers, this is the way we are to live. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This is not tithe and offering. This isn't that, you know, you've dedicated out some money to regularly give. We do see in the New Testament a, 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 a command to regularly give, to be generous with the church. The, the, the percentage is never specified in the New Testament, but for people to provide and regularly give in order to care for the needs of ministry and mission, this is actually different. This is the kind of giving from the heart that's over and above the local support of a church. This is, I see the need of a brother or sister, and I meet it. I see the need, and I'm willing to sacrifice what I have in order to meet that need. No Christian goes hungry unless we all go hungry. Christians love to be generous with one another. I didn't know how true this was until Laura and I had to raise financial support to move to Utah. <laughs> oh, it's just, people have told me this. They'd be like, Rich, just, it's okay. Just go, go tell people what you're doing and that you need funds to go do it. And I'm like, oh man, by far, my least looked forward to part of planting a church what? I had, I had Christians tell me, Rich, Christians love to give. <laughs> Just watch. Go, go ask. <sighs> okay. Okay. I remember uh, the day we announced in our church that we needed financial support to move to Utah to do this. Um, right after the service was over and, the, and the, the lead pastor of the church there had said, hey, the Sanfords are moving on out. We want to support them. They're going to be meeting with people and telling you what their needs are. Get behind them. I had this family that I, I never ever remember meeting. Just showed up. And they said, you, you, don't, you don't remember us, but um, you used to sit in the balcony way back there. You know how people have assigned seats. You know. Um, so I used to sit back in the balcony like years before this time. And, and uh, they said, we sat right behind you. And uh, we remember after you sat here, then you ended up on the stage doing worship stuff and then youth and then preaching and adult pastoring and stuff like that. And ever since, we were always like, man, we just, we liked this guy. We shook his hand during the meet and greet time. And um, when we heard you were going somewhere, we're in. I was like, what? They don't know me. We went to believers after believer and just said, if the Lord puts it on your heart, we need, we need help to get out there, to plant a church. We want to reach people for Christ. We want to establish a beacon of hope and truth out there in a, in a godless territory. And people were like, how can I give? What can I do? How can I get behind this? And now we understand. Now Laura and I are so eager. Oh my goodness. We, we get to give to people. We get to provide for Christians. We get to do it without anyone even knowing. Guys, Christians love being generous. If you're ever, as a believer, in a place where you're hurting financially or you feel that God has given a particular charge to you to be a part of or, or begin a ministry to spread the kingdom and you're wondering, Lord, how in the world could this work? Watch. Watch Christians eagerly show up, aching to provide for the needs 
of other believers. Watch Christians sacrificially make sure that you will never go hungry. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They went to the temple. The Christians here ask, what does it mean? What do they do at the temple? Remember, no one could go in the temple. They're hanging out at the courts. Women weren't allowed in. Non-Levites, non-Aaronites, they couldn't go in the temple. They were gathering there because it was a central location. It was the place in which they could be together in a large group, thousands, and be able to gather and pray together. Up until Acts 8, where persecution begins, and no longer do the Christians gather corporately in large groups in the temple. We see some of them go on occasion to to go pray together and be part of that gathering. But eventually, by 70 AD, the temple will be destroyed and never again will a Christian enter temple grounds until the end. They They gathered together in large group gatherings in order to worship and pray together. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising God and having favor with all the people? This is what they did. They praised. They gave worship to God. They honored him. The people around them saw this. They saw their good deeds and knew there was something special about these believers. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Once again, we see the great and wonderful paradox of Christian salvation. Belief and sovereignty. Who added the people? God did. What did the people do? They believed. God adds people to the church. This is what we pray for as a church. Lord, add people, draw people, save souls, convert hearts. So let me close with a summary. What marked these believers and what ought we be doing now? I'm gonna make this quick. We must devote ourselves to the word of God. This has been absolute bedrock foundation for the mission church since before we even had a name is that we wanted it to be founded on the word of God. We wanted to celebrate, exalt in, worship around, through, meet around the word of God. We love the Bible and are eager to talk about the Bible. We are devoted to God's word. We have a high view of God's word. God says what to do and we obey. And when we find something that we're doing that we get to a verse and go, oh, oh, that's different. We change Because God's word reigns. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is going to be what we follow in everything that we do as a church. Second, we are to have affection, fellowship, loving relationship with one another. Galatians 6.10 says, so then we have opportunity as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's every person that exists. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have been given a priority of caring for fellow believers. Yes, let that good love overflow into the world. But we are to have a special kind of fellowship with one another. We care so much about you finding a good church home. We're okay if it's not here. 
Laura used to get all over me about this. I, we'd meet new people with churches barely, barely starting, and I'd say, hey, yeah, we'd love for you to be part of the mission church, but hey, let me, let me tell you about three or four other really good churches in the area. People would be like, well, you, don't want, you don't want me to be here? And she's like, stop saying that. It makes it seem like you're sending people away. Because from the very beginning, I wanted to make it clear that I meant it when I said, I want you to be having this kind of fellowship. And if you could have that faster and better and more lasting at another local church, get on it. Always said this. Because you have to have devotion to the word of God and fellowship, people that you can do this with. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world is watching how we're gonna love one another. This is so critical. We gather together in big groups like they did at the temple and it's small groups, like they did in the homes. Big groups and little groups. See that? You're tending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Christians get together here at church on a gathering in a large group setting and have people over for dinner. Meaningful meals. Believers, break bread with one another. Feast with one another. Invite people over to your home. Fill your schedule with having people sit around your table and pray together. Share your testimonies together. Open the Bible together. Talk about life and sin and confession and all those things together. Pray together. Not isolated. Stop praying for that thing that's heavy on your heart alone. Do that and invite others in as well. And lastly, be enthusiastically generous. Be looking for things to give to, for needs that you can meet. Pop quiz as we close. The summary, this is, this is what marked the church here in Acts chapter two. Here's the question for you. At what time and place in history did Christians not do this? Never. Never. Christians have always done this and will always do this. So this is my closing exhortation, my closing encouragement. What are we to do with the craziness? This stuff. We're to devote ourselves to the word. We're to be in loving mutual fellowship, pray together, break bread in each other's homes. We're to, we're to be doing life in such a way that we give generously and enthusiastically to one another. That's what we're to do. Rich, is that enough? Yes. Yes. Set your heart to do what God's church has always been commanded to do. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I am so personally and greatly encouraged that your word has told us what to do. You know exactly what we are facing. You've seen it. You've ordained it before the world was even created. Lord, help us to be a group of people that has such focus, such understanding that we are to do the things that you've called for us to do. Help us to look just like the early church in all the good ways, Lord. Father, help us to align to what your word has told for us to do. God, I know there are people in this church who just might not have found good fellowship yet. They just haven't, haven't been in each other's homes and meals and, and, uh, and praying with one another. I pray that you would you'd kick open the door and help people just to do that. Help the introverts in our church to get over that and just get to know one another. Father, help the extroverts to take on that charge to, to invite people to their homes. Father, I pray that we as a, as a church family embrace these kinds of things. We survive to this next generation to watch your church grow and the kingdom be built exactly as you have planned. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.